say, kids, what time is it? Or should I say, what playing with time is it? It's time for another Brio TV, the podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Brio. Today's episode is brought to you by Hollywood Suite, Super Channel, and CTV. Today's episode should be a treat for fans of Canada's longest-running TV drama, Degrassi. We have as a guest the woman behind the entire Degrassi franchise, going way back to the kids of Degrassi, and then right through to Degrassi, the next generation. She's written a terrific book about her experiences as an executive producer and a studio head, and the book has a great cheeky title. The Mother of All Degrassi, a memoir. Please welcome Linda Schuyler. Linda, great to see you today. Hey, Bill. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Um, yeah, I love your book. It's a wonderful read. Folks should run out and get it. Uh, it uh, talks about everything. Did you manage to write all this yourself, Linda? I did. And let, let me tell you, that's a major accomplishment because many people think um, that I wrote scripts on Degrassi. And I did not write a single script. I encouraged my writers, I gave my writers notes, but we would have meetings and then they would go off and write and somehow the material would miraculously appear and there's nobody there but me. And it was it was really quite lonely at the beginning. Well, um, it, it, you've done a wonderful job. It's a real page turner. It's very compelling and you've staggered some, you go back and forth in time. You're playing with time, if you'll pardon the expression, <laughs> and it really, really works. Um but uh, it's such an impressive story. So let me uh, let's find a way to start in on this. It, uh, you know, I loved um, the, the let's start with the, the, the roots of Degrassi itself, the, the, the series and this book that you discover through your friend, Bruce, who sees he's got a book in the library. He thinks, you know, you might want to look at Ida makes a movie. And it's is it a, it's a book about cats, isn't it? Is that <laughs> Yeah. It's a book about animated cats, like cartoon type cats. But, but, and so Bruce used to order books for me that he thought would have things to do with the media for my grade eight students. And he walked in one day and he said, Oh, Linda, I'm going to have to put this one on the babysitting shelf. It's, it's too young. And I, and I looked at it and I said, Oh, it sounds cute. Let me read. And I read. And even though it was about cats, Ida had a single mom. They were living in a um, low-income area, inner city, and um, she had this desire that she wanted to make a movie. She made a movie. She sends it to a movie contest. The judges give her first prize, but they actually didn't understand her movie. They think it's about war, and really it's about garbage. So she has a crisis of conscience. Should she accept this award or not? And there was just a lot in that little story that I loved. And um, so we turned the cats into real kids and um, over time wrote a script that became actually the first scripted um, show that I would ever produce. I had to make some movie and we had yeah. no idea at the time that that would be the pilot for what would become the whole Degrassi franchise. <laughs> it's an incredible story because, you know, really your first inclination was to make an animated show about, mm -hmm. about this. And then I think it was a note at CBC or somewhere saying, no, look, we really want live action. If you can give us that cast some real kids. And you went out and did exactly that in the purest way possible. And it really was the template for everything else that came all the rest of the way, right? 
Well, you know, I it, it was very subconscious what was happening and very much um, in my rooted in my eight years of um, teaching junior high. Um, so I, I wanted this uh, show to be authentic and I wanted age appropriate casting and I wanted to shoot on a, a real street. And so um, with that, it became what we Degrassi as it moved forward would always be age-appropriate right up through all the various incarnations that we've done of it over the years. Um, it was always about the kids making choices. It was Ida who had to decide, will she tell the judge he's made a mistake or not? It doesn't. There's no adult intervention into what happens, which is a very another critical thing in the storytelling that stayed with us over the years. Um, the fact that it was in a lower-income um, area, in an inner city, um, all of that stayed with the show the whole time. Yeah, no, it, it's all there. It's brilliant. Um, and I'm fascinated, too. At this point, you are still teaching, right? You're still a, a teacher. <laughs> you mean, well, not in the formal sense of the word. Well, I mean, I, I lecture at universities and... Um, oh, no, no, I mean, Linda, that uh, back when you made Ida, that very oh, first... Oh. Still, yeah. right so you, you you taught school and it's a fascinating part of your book right in the early pages just that, about that about how you um you just you discovered that there was a closet full of Aeroflexes and bolexes and steinbecks at the board and you said well is anybody using them well no well maybe i will and then you just just plow into this like it's my head is exploding reading this it's it's amazing because First of all, do you think today a teacher could corral a, a classroom full of kids and pull this kind of thing together, or would there be five hundred notes from parents saying, "Well, wait oh. a minute"? Oh, I, I don't, I don't think for one moment you could do what I did today. You know, um, I'm sure that there would. We, we, we did send notes home to all the parents and let them know what was happening, and every kid had the right not to participate if they didn't want to, but. Everybody was kind of game and willing yeah. to go forward. I'm, I'm quite sure there would have been many more questions asked in the kinds of today's environment. Um, uh, you know, I also have Pierre Elliott Trudeau to thank because it was in the area of um, time of multiculturalism and he yeah. was putting little pockets of money across the country for multicultural stories. And so the $5,000 that we got was enough to make this movie happen. Um, and it was, no, I, I'm not sure, I'm not entirely sure how one could pull it off. I don't even know how I did it then. And here's, here's an interesting <laughs> story. I started shooting, I started teaching at my new school in September. And my memory was that the next year I made the movie. And when we went back and fact checked the dates, I actually made that movie that year. I started teaching in a new school. I had the audacity to pitch making <laughs> a documentary within months of having been hired, got the green light, shot the film, and it went across the country all in my first year at that school. Even I couldn't remember that I had was that audacious. <laughs> it's incredible. Do you think there's something to that, though, that, you know, uh, parents get your kids in front of a teacher in their first year because they're going to do stuff that they may never attempt again because <laughs> they just don't know not to do it, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful story. I think every parent reading this book or hearing about it will think, man, I'd love my kids to be in that class. And uh, uh, how fortunate all these kids were that you got to tell these stories. 
Um, I love too this notion later on that you're you're developing the series. We're jumping ahead of here a bit, but Hill Street Blues comes on the air, and you look at that, and you go Hill Street Blues and school, and that was. To me, it reminded me of Brandon Tartikoff, who was a legendary NBC programmer who wrote down once MTV Cops, and they went out and made Miami Vice. You know, right. it's such a simple equation, but it actually nails it, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, I was, um, you know, riveted by the storytelling and and the, the ABC plots and the things that didn't have to wrap up and that carried forward. And um, I thought, well, if that works for adults, because I, I, it can work for my young audience, because I never wanted to talk down to my young audience. I really wanted to meet them, you know, as they were young adults rather than kids. And so why didn't they deserve sophisticated storytelling as well? Well, and also, and I've interviewed some of the Hill Street cast over the years, and um, you know, they're, what they say is that when they when they were cast, they couldn't believe their luck because they sort of described themselves as mutts in that they weren't <laughs> all they didn't all just step out of glamour magazines. You know, they right. looked like regular men and women, and um, you know, here you you had sort of the same idea in high school. These kids looked real and authentic. Um, and not groomed or straight from some agency, right? Exactly. Um, in fact, I um, lost a deal with CBC in the early days um, yeah. when they didn't like the casting that I had done with one of my characters. And um, he played Noel, Peter Duckworth Pilkington II. And they said, and he, and he was he was so charming and he's a little overweight and had a bit of a speech impediment, but he was so charismatic and the camera loved him. And they said, well, we love your story, but we'd like you to recast the, the main character. And they suggested somebody who was in like a Kraft cheese commercial. And it was like, I can't do that. And... <laughs> And I watched it. I remember walking away from the deal and I called my partner from a pay phone on Young Street saying, I've just done the worst thing. I walked away from the deal. I don't know how we're going to pay the rent. And he just said, you did the right thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, good for you. I, my memory of the Kraft cheese commercials is you only ever saw the hands. I don't remember. <laughs> Maybe this was a cereal commercial. I don't know. Maybe it was Monty <laughs> Likes it or something. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> Well, we're back again with Emily Gagne from Hollywood Suite. And Emily, it's so great to see you again. Um, listen, have you got any of those great chase movies lined up this month on Hollywood Suite? We sure do, Bill. Uh, we're calling this stunt on the run. And we've got everything from Charade, which is a personal favorite, to North by Northwest. Duel, if you're getting ready for the Fableman's uh, Spielberg's new movie. Uh, that's his first movie. We have Oh, Plane, Trains, and Automobiles, and a uh, Tom Null favorite. True Romance, which is actually premiering on our service for the first time. Listen, I didn't think Chevy Chase was in any of those films. <laughs> oh, oh, chase movie! Ch- I get chase movies. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Uh, I know yeah. it's easy to mis misconstrue. Hey, listen. What about a really great Canadian cult classic, one we haven't seen in ages? Have you got something like that coming up? 
We have two of those coming up. Actually, wow. Bill, uh, we've got Guy Madden's feature film debut, Tales from the Gimli Hospital, which recently played uh, the restoration played at TIFF, but we're going to be premiering it on our service on November 9th. You can also watch it on demand starting November 1st. And even cooler, I think, is um, Zale Dallin's 1977 film, Skip Tracer, which is sort of the inspiration for films like uh, Repo Man, uh, Alex Cox film from the 80s. Lots of great chase films and Canadian classics coming at you on Hollywood Suite. Thanks a lot, Emily. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, it, it uh, you know, you had the right recipe and everything, but um, what were you thinking when, when you were making that first Ida? Uh, was that a half hour? Um, huh. And um, did at that point, did you have a thinking were you thinking already this is a series or this was just a one-off or this is just a step on the way to whatever it is i'm going to do when did you know this was a franchise oh you're quite right that all i thought it was at that time was a step on the way because we were doing what my partner and i were doing in those days in order to pay the rent we were doing a lot of documentaries for hire we were versioning commercials we were just doing a bunch of things to pay the bills and we shot this one. And first of all, we had so much fun doing it um, that we thought, oh, we'd like to do more scripted. But we didn't necessarily think more of that. But when we shared it with um, the CBC, pre-bought it. And then um, we had a descri- distributor in those days, Magic Lantern. And both of them came back and they said, this is exactly what we need right now. There's no live action for young people. Will you do more? And um, so we originally started thinking like we would do, oh, Ida goes to hospital, Ida gets a friend, Ida does this. Yeah. And then we thought, wait a moment, <laughs> we've cast this show with a nine-year-old girl who doesn't even know she wants to be an actor f- forever. So that's when we decided we would do uh, an umbrella title, which was Kids of Degrassi Street. And that's when our whole notion of ensemble casting began, which again became one of the key elements that carried with us throughout the years. Mm. And at what point uh, did you approach Elwi Yost? I mean, back then, <laughs> Elwi was a, a legend. Uh, you'd see him on Saturday night. He was he was the one-man TCM channel, wasn't he? Uh, oh, he was awesome. I used to love watching Saturday night at the movies. Yeah. He, um, <laughs> I was I was sitting there watching TVO and watching watching Elwi one Saturday night, and I saw him, and I thought, we needed the uh, judge for the Ida's contest. And I, I looked at him, and I thought, he would be so awesome. And I approached him and he said, yes, <laughs> to my delight. <laughs> yeah, isn't that great? His, yeah. his, his son's now uh, obviously one of the great television producers in America, isn't he? Oh, my gosh. And Where? a great writer. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. He's, he's doing all kinds of great things. Um, and Linda, do you think, I mean, uh, you know, and, and you, you've sort of come back round to your early days growing up in England toward the end of your book. Um <laughs> But that to me is fascinating, you know, that you tell this very, the great Canadian story of high school experience. And in, in some ways, you came to Canada as an outsider. Um, was that maybe um, helpful in, in telling that story? Did you, do you think you saw things maybe differently that way? I I think it was really helpful. (laughs) Didn't feel very helpful at the time when my grade three classmates were taunting me for my silly British accent and the ridiculous school uniform that my mother made me wear to school. Um, But 
when I stood in front of my first class in Toronto and I saw all the diversity there and I thought, my goodness, you know, I was a, I was a white girl who spoke English and I felt like an alien. So what do some of these kids feel like? So I, I think, you know, having been taunted and bullied when I was a kid actually gave me quite a bit of empathy for um, my young people and the storytelling that we did together. Yeah, it's an incredible insight. You know, I mean, I grew up in the West End of Toronto in Etobicoke. My mom was born in Scotland, but um, the, the, my, my memory of my upbringing was that uh, Etobicoke was not a very diverse place for me anyway, and that had I been uh, a youngster downtown, uh, what you experienced with Degrassi, it would have advanced uh, my awakening in terms of all things diversity here. Um, So where you were also seemed to play a a great role in that, making you so empathetic, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I mentioned it in my book. I mean, when I I grew up in a, we came from England, then we grew up in a small town, small Ontario town, Paris, Ontario, which is lovely and it's beautiful. But, you know, (laughs) my parents had this thing. It was like, it it was okay for me to date. Like we were Presbyterian. I could date somebody who was united, maybe Anglican, not Catholic, definitely not Jewish, which sounds terrible today. (laughs) Like there was no diversity in that town. Even the the Baptists were a little iffy, I read. Oh, I know. (laughs) They didn't play cards. So, you know, that, that wasn't good. So, yeah, to be exposed to all the beautiful richness um, in Toronto and to be exposed at a time when multiculturalism was moving as a wave across the country. So it was like I was there at the right time. I had the right sensibility, but I was also I benefited from what was happening politically at the time. Yes, your timing was very good. But uh, I have to say, Linda, I mean, a lot of people have good timing, but you, you obviously had a moxie or a stick to a drive that yeah. made all this work. Well, where, where did that come from? Partially, um, when you have immigrant parents and you see how hard they work, mm-hmm. um, that has a lot to do with it. And I do tell the story in my book about the, um, the very bad car crash I was involved in, where yeah. there were three of us in the car and two didn't make it and I survived. And and I wonder sometimes if it's almost, you know, survivor guilt that makes me just sort of, I I don't do it consciously, but I I wondered as I wrote my book and I was amazed at some of the moxie things I did. Is it, you know, partially my immigrant parents, partially um, survivor guilt, partially just being the eldest of four children and I'm naturally bossy? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Well, a combination for sure, but certainly, um, my goodness, having such a terrible thing, such a traumatic thing happen at a young age um, has to make you very aware of the clock, right? That, uh, you know, to, you, you are playing with time all every day, and um, it's, it's, it helps you hurry up, I would think. It, it gives you a different perspective. I mean, mm. I am just grateful to be here chatting with you you know (laughs) well i'm grateful you're here chatting with me so that works out for all of us
Looking for something new to get into this month on CTV? Well, there are plenty of fresh episodes of new fall dramas, including East New York, starring Amanda Warren and Jimmy Smith's, Oldest Rookie, Feds, starring Nisi Nash, and Alaska Daily, starring Oscar winner Hilary Swank. Canadian favorites airing this month include the comedy Children Ruin Everything, featuring recent podcast guest Megan Rath, plus the third season of the hospital drama Transplant, featuring another Brio TV favorite, Hosma Hack. Have you checked out the new Supernatural prequel series, The Winchesters, yet? It airs Tuesdays over on CTV Sci-Fi. The Good Doctor is back saving lives for a sixth season on Monday nights, and on the fifth season of The Connors, Look for William H. Macy to join the Blue Collar Clan as one of Dan's old high school buddies. Finally, Let's Make a Deal host and current Dancing with the Stars contestant Wayne Brady will be hosting the 2022 American Music Awards live from Los Angeles on Sunday, November 20th. There's plenty to get into this fall on CTV and anytime on the CTV app. Listen, uh, how many episodes altogether? Over 500, right? Uh, I know. I I don't have the exact number at my fingertips. 525 or something in that vicinity. I wrote wrote (laughs) recently about um, the 50th anniversary, uh, you know, of um, the Beachcombers. And that was a series that lasted 18 seasons. And I think they did 300 and some odd episodes. But... The number of shows is incredible for Degrassi. Really, it's very there are very few parallels anywhere. Um, and as I said, when you were making those first ones, you probably didn't see it as a franchise. But no. uh, yeah, and it just seemed to evolve, didn't it? That you went from one step to another to eventually being like uh, owning a studio and, and being a mogul, right? <laughs> Well, you you came to visit our studio, that beautiful. Oh, what a thrill! It, it, you you what an operation! The school is there. You had the whole facade, and um, I, I don't know if you'll recall, you were kind enough, and Ian Christensen uh, was wonderful in this too. I had a visitor from Ohio, a guy I used to talk to on the radio, and he was in Toronto right. with his thirteen-year-old daughter and her friend, and forget the CN tower or anything else. <laughs> All they wanted to see was Degrassi and for them to go there. And you guys were kind enough to let them be on the set, meet the cast and even say cut. Right, uh, I, I remember. <laughs> yeah. It was an experience they never forgot. And uh, so thank you again for that. But um, it was so impressive to see the way it was all laid out that you had this factory you were making other shows as well. Um, did, did having these cha- wearing Cheney's different hats all the time, did it just get more interesting for you to have all of that experience? Yeah, and um, it, I love the way we, I, I've always thought in life, if I hadn't become a, a television producer, that I might have become an architect because I love space and I love how people move in space. And when we bought that warehouse, I, I, it was really interesting to look at it as a blank slate and see, okay, if we put these offices here, who's going to pass by one another? I just wanted a lot of cross-pollination to happen in uh, in there. And then we needed areas that were going to be private areas and then the cafeteria, which was everybody's meeting spot. So I, there was a lot of work. It wasn't just me. I, you know, I had a couple of great designers and, um, and Stephen was wonderful. 
But that was, that was the theory behind that. We really wanted to make a place that was people friendly, that, um, allowed for communication to happen freely, would be efficient and, you know, uh, allow for a good work environment for people. Well, that mission accomplished, and you got to be an architect. You at least, you know, punch out some windows here and turn this into a school. And totally, <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty cool. Um, you mentioned Stephen, your husband, and yeah. um, your book. It's there's uh, many, many great stories in it, but it's um, all of these people that you met and the the really romance of uh, uh, your story. There, it was wonderful to have an opportunity to just sit with those stories myself. And because, you know, we spend so much time of our lives just pushing forward and on to the next thing. And I found writing this book to be, you know, I told you it was a pretty lonely experience, but it was also very reflective and um, allowed me to sort of join some dots going backwards. And um, it was, I, I, I'm really, I'm really glad I had the opportunity. I'm really glad ECW decided to publish it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about your great friendship with Bruce Mackey. You know, you'd forget, uh, you know, it was an individual. He was the librarian at uh, your school uh, and just a great friend. But he was closeted and and tortured because of that. And the horrors of that, um, I'd forgotten. And I was, remember, you know, stories of bathhouses and things, Toronto, the good. You know, it was... uh, evolutionary time and very painful for many 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 people and so uh it was uh an eye-opener to read those stories in your book again and place everything in context and time right oh it's it's so hard to believe that it was i mean but for some people it seems like ages ago but in my lifetime and yours the late 1980s is not that long ago. No. And that's when police were raiding bathhouses and including yeah. gay people. And people, gay men committed suicide because their parents were finding out things about them. It was just horrific. And, and you know, to have somebody who I really was very close to and very fond of um, be torn between pretending to be straight during his teaching days and then having his bathhouse experience on the weekends, it just tore my heart out that he couldn't just be. And and that he became such a big uh, driver for me to want to tell our LGBTQ plus storylines over and over and over again with different characters in different ways at different times. Yeah. It's, it really is revolutionary what you did with those stories. It didn't, there was no other context for it on television. You must have shook your head when things like Beverly Hills 90210 would come along and cast this Ken and Barbie cast of people who were in their thirties playing high schoolers. Um, it, it was none of that really was so the 180 degrees away from, from Degrassi, wasn't it? Yep. Um, and you know, there's room. There's room in the television box sure. for it all. Yep. <laughs> we don't want Degrassi all the time. Um, but I have a theory about um, if you cast like a 25-year-old as a 15-year-old, a lot of 25-year-olds can look the part and they can get away with it. But what they bring to screen, and people forget this, they bring 10 more years of life experience, and there's no way they can hide that, no matter how young they look. Whereas when I put a 15-year-old on screen and he's playing 15 years, he's only bringing 15 years of life experience with him or her. Yeah. And that makes it that much more authentic. Yeah. It's fascinating, Linda. Like you say, you didn't write the scripts, but all of those decisions that you made really helped write the show, didn't it? 
Oh, it certainly was incredibly important for, you know, what what I ended up calling like the Degrassi DNA. It's just sort of those things that you have to have. Like we we also had to be very uh, astute and move with the times like we we couldn't we had to meet the kids where they were. So, you know, as things changed and as computers became more in their lives and social media, we had to make sure that we were keeping up with all of that, but not losing track at the same time of what is the DNA and what are those things that make Degrassi Degrassi. Mm. I hate to ask you to choose among your own children, since you're the mother of all Degrassi, but the, the early casts have to, you must have a special fondness for these folks who are now, I guess, in their uh, 40s and 50s, some of them. Uh, uh, am, I, am I correct in assuming that, that they're the ones that you have uh, the most fondness for? I mean, you were right when you said, like, you're a mother. You can't choose between the two. But, <laughs> but I do, like, I look at Stefan Brogren, who was with me. Yeah. From, he joined as Snake in uh, Degrassi Junior High at 14. And I think he's turned 50. Ian can verify it for us. But, you know, he's grown up being an actor. He's one of my lead directors on the show. He's now directing all over the country. Similarly, Anaya Skronofsky, who played Lucy, um, she's gone on to have a great career. She's just published her own book. I don't know if you've read it. Girl no. in the it, It's a fascinating read. You should read it. Um, so I, as I see, because my younger ones are, are, are just maturing so beautifully. And, but then we've got the ones that we're also proud of, like the Drakes and the Nina Dobrevs of the world. <laughs> sure. You know? It's, and, and then I've got great writers who were, have been with me and who are now show running in LA. Michael Grassi's on Riverdale and Aaron Martin's doing a couple of Netflix shows and, uh, it's great. Oh my goodness. Is it ever? Yeah. I mean, really, Degrassi, when you tabulate the contribution in terms of writing, directing, acting, mm. it, it really was Canada's, uh, schoolhouse for, uh, for the whole industry for many, many years. Now, um, you just you never went to film school you never really studied any of this but were there who was it that maybe inspired you in terms of filmmaking or storytelling that's really a hard one i i don't know i mean it i wasn't the story was definitely driven by the young people that i was teaching there's no question about that why i was so drawn to the media i don't i don't know um i i I had a Super 8 camera when I was young, and I used to make little animated shows and whatnot, but um, never thought of it as a profession. It just seemed like a little cute hobby, you know? Yeah. Well, it, it's more than a cute hobby. That it worked out really well. Um, and, you know, there are some other uh, tragic tales, too, of course. Uh, one of your young cast members, Neil Hope, uh, we were all shocked to learn he died so tragically several years ago. Um you know, and then you write in your book that you felt that you'd let him down. And my goodness, you probably gave him so much reason to get up and go to work every day, right? I mean, uh, there's two sides to that. But that had to have been a very uh, heartbreaking day for you, right? Yeah, he had a special spot in my heart, no question. And, um, yeah, and it was just so tragic that... He went down a path that he knew he shouldn't, and um, and the way it happened, and we didn't hear for the longest time. I mean, I'm 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 saddened even right now as we're talking about it. Yeah. I thought 
I, I, I knew we get, had given him some lifelines. I knew that. And, and you do that as a teacher as well. And we all do that as adults with the young people around us. And you hope that the lifelines that you've given are going to be strong enough. And in some cases, they're just not. And I know ultimately we can't blame ourselves that they weren't strong enough, but, um, it's still, it's very heartbreaking when you, when you have you know, put them out there and the tragedy. Uh, yeah. Work. You, you must though be heartened by uh, letters and other correspondence from people who have let you know that your show is life-saving for them just as a viewer. Right. Oh, and you, you probably read in my book, I keep these binders behind my desk called why I do what I do. Yeah. And it's full of letters, not just from kids, but from parents as well. And it's not, no offense, right. it's no media comments. It's all comments from my my audience, young and old, just saying how their life was changed. And I even got this afternoon, I just got an email in from somebody who is a son of one of my friends and said, Linda, I'm just working now in New York and I'm teaching at NYU. I'm teaching in uh, LDB. LGBTQ journalism and I want you to know that the only way I got the courage to come up to my parents was because I watched your show Marco. Wow. And that happened just this afternoon before we were talking so I do know I do know that we've made a, a difference in a lot of people's lives and that's very satisfying. That's for sure. Super Channel is keeping spirits merry and bright this season with its annual Heart and Home Christmas Holiday Movie Event. It all gets underway November 4th with encore presentations of favorite holiday movies every weekend. Then, beginning November 18th, a new festive title will air every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night until December 23rd. This season's festive offerings include 26 movies new to Super Channel Heart and Home, including 12 festive films making their Canadian broadcast premieres. The lineup of new films includes five Super Channel Heart and Home original productions. They'll feature familiar stars, including Danica McKellar, Lacey Chalbert, Christina Milan, Chad Michael Murray, Jill Wagner, and Daniel Lessing, as well as fan-favorite Canadians, including three friends of this podcast, Yannick Pisson, Art Hindle, and Colin Mockery. All movies will air commercial-free and will be available on Super Channel on demand throughout the holiday season and beyond. Super Channel is available via most cable providers, as well as streaming via Amazon Prime Video channels and Apple TV+. We're talking uh, to Linda Schuyler. Uh, her new book, The Mother of All Degrassi, a memoir, is out now on at ECW Press. Um, and you write on the front of the book this great blurb, quote, the greatest ally in, in entertainment young audiences have had since John Hughes. And this is from <laughs> Kevin Smith, the filmmaker. Kevin is like the biggest Degrassi fan of all time, right? When did you first encounter this guy? 
Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, um, I heard about him more than encounter him. Uh, he, evidently, he came to my office when I was, I think we were shooting Liberty Street or something, and um, he wanted to meet me. And um, my secretary wouldn't give him any information as to where I was. So I, the next thing I know is somebody said to me, we came home after shooting, said to me, Linda, you better turn on your television and uh, CTV. And it was Speaker's Corner. And Kevin Smith was standing there with Jason Mewes just saying, what's with Canada? I come here to meet like the producer who I am a big fan of and they shut me out and this is not fair. <laughs> Railing on Speaker's Corner. It's like, wow. oh, no. <laughs> so well, we tracked him down and I sent him a Degrassi jacket. And um, anyway, and, and we've become great friends ever since. He's I got, a- I'm sorry, I kept that ringing. I don't know how to get rid of it. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, no, Kevin's very smart to have used Speaker's Corner to get in touch with you. <laughs> what a genius. Um, very good. Now, uh, Linda, bring us up to date. Um, the series, you uh, uh, sold uh, the, the series, I believe, in 2016 to DHX, mm-hmm. to Kevin Donovan and the folks in uh, Halifax there. Uh, Kevin, famous, of course, for 22 minutes and a lot of other great things. Um, and he seemed like a, a perfect steward, you felt, right, to, uh-huh. to take the baton. Um, what was it that motivated you to sell it at that time? Well, it wasn't a very easy decision, I can tell you for sure. Um, but, um, and it's my, Michael Donovan. Um, my, what did I say? Kevin, I'm so sorry. It is Michael. Yeah, my apology. And uh, Michael and I had known each other for a long time, and I was chair of the CFTPA board when he was a member of it. And we had, there was a lot of mutual respect. And we had discussed over the years a couple of times about maybe doing some collaborations. And um, then he came to us when he was forming DHX and wondered if we wanted to be part of that consortium. And we weren't ready at the time. Then he came back and he came back at a time when I think Stephen and I had both turned 65 and we both had aging parents and there are other things going on in our lives. And he gave us a really wonderful offer to buy the studio, to buy the franchise. And, you know, it, when you're, when you're an independent company, Canadian, there's not a lot of opportunity out there. So, um, and, and Michael was brilliant. He said, I want you to keep working for the company. We want to protect you like a coral reef. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it just, it just, I mean, obviously we did really well by the sale. Yeah. Um, but it was still so hard because, you know, I'd nurtured the show for 40 years. I had, I loved the building that we had built. Um, but it just, the timing seemed right. And, Yes. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, Jim Henson sold his business to Disney, right? You need to yeah. sometimes do these things to grow these things. So good for you. Um, now, um, uh, people are curious, of course, there were announcements about the series continuing on HBO Max. And I guess we heard very recently that all of these streaming services are contracting a bit. They're sort of hitting the wall and they're cutting some staff and it looked it sounds as if this project may be on hold right now. Am I reading that correctly? I think so. I mean, I'm not party to the deals, yeah. um, but as you know, I think it by HBO Max and was it Discovery? The, yeah, 
Huge over. deal. Yeah. Huge, huge deal. And as we've seen in so many of these situations, there's been a lot of layoffs, a lot of um, people let go, a lot of shows. I, so I, I don't quite know where the, um, what's going to happen to Degrassi, but it's nothing. It's all about the larger politics at play. So, but I have every confidence that I think the world is ready to have a Degrassi comeback. So I have every confidence that whether, you know, it, it, it comes out of the ashes of the HBO, um, Disney thing or whether it comes from another place. I, I think we're going to see another incarnation. I will not be the mother of this one. I will be the grandmother of this one. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. No, that deal with HBO, it was like $77 billion. I think what I can see that what's going to happen here, Linda, that you need a guy with lots of cash. I'm thinking Drake. You know, I think he could probably buy a studio right now and get yeah. you going. Yeah. Aubrey, get right on that. There we go. Uh, listen, uh, before I let you go, and thank you very much for your time, um, three questions I ask about television. The first is, what are you watching right now? Is there a TV show you're binging that uh, you that you just love to watch it right now? Well, here's the thing. Don't ask me why this was not conscious. Ever since I've stopped producing, I have not watched scripted television. And I I don't know if it's because I can see too much to it or whether I just need a little more time. So if I'm binging anything, I'm binging the news. And I would have to say that I am hooked on the greatest soap opera, which is <laughs> the implosion of our American, our American neighbors. Right. Although the story took a little bit of a turn this yeah. past week. Yeah. Um, so nice. to me, it's like the biggest soap opera right now. Yeah, well, it, we can breathe a little bit. You're right. It's a fascinating show. That's a good good one to be on top of. Uh, <laughs> how about back when you were a youngster growing up, maybe as far back in England, but when you arrived in Canada, was there something that you well, would run home from school to watch? I wouldn't run home from school because it didn't play after school. But I would watch on Sunday night with my family. And because son, we had very limited time to watch TV as kids growing up. And, but on Sunday, it was family time and we would watch as a family Lassie. <laughs> oh my goodness. Right. Lassie, yeah, the dog. Did, <laughs> the did dog, you watch, did, did you watch The Littlest Hobo as well? I did. I did. And I know as a Canadian, I probably should have said that, but Lassie kind of, even though Lassie kept changing its cast and whatnot, the dog, even though we know the dog kept changing, it looked like con- a constant, right? And, Oh, there was always peril, somebody falling down a well or somebody yeah. trapped in an abandoned something or other, and the dog always saved the day, and it was awesome. <laughs> was there ever a Lassie episode of Degrassi? Was there one where dogs were featured prominently? No, I don't think so, right? Not that I'm <laughs> top of mind remembering. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just thought I'd ask. Um, all right. Well, listen, what about uh, theme songs in terms of uh, television? Was there a TV theme song that always you always felt was the best of all time? Well, if by best you mean it's sort of you hear it and you just want to go to the TV set? Sure, yeah, just, exactly. Yeah. Sure. Or Coronation Street. Oh, okay. You're a Corey <laughs> fan. Yeah. Uh, th- that that goes back that goes back uh, to the 60s, doesn't it, that show? Oh, it goes back and it still goes forward. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there we have it. We're caught up. Listen, folks, please, please go get The Mother of All Degrassi, a memoir. Beautifully written, Linda. You've done a great job and it's very compelling uh, story on many, many levels. It's a, if you grew up in Toronto like I did, uh, you'll recognize so many uh, neighborhoods and places. 
but even just the whole fabric of the community and and, and uh, the changes we've all gone through. So you've been able to uh, capture it in your book very, very well. Bill, did I tell you, too, that um, I am giving all the proceeds of um, the author proceeds of my book to Kids Help Phone because I, fi- I think their, their messaging that they do is something that I was doing all along in Degrassi. So I'm really um, I'm, I- I'm really happy to be working with them on this project as well. Yeah, it's right on your flap of your book. You can scan it and uh, make a contribution. It, it makes it really easy. Uh, what a wonderful idea, Linda. Good for you. Very generous. During the, the success of the show, or the early days at least, you know, reviews would start to come in. And um, a, a former colleague, um, a guy at the Toronto Star, Jim Bodden, I know, uh, was an early champion of Degrassi uh, and saw it as a show that was not just for kids, but one that he loved as well. What, what did that mean? What was the importance or the effect of having a critic embrace the show uh, in those early days? Um. It, it was it was really heartwarming because in those early days, even though you know my credit said that I was a producer and a director, um, I still kind of felt like I was a school teacher, just kind of pursuing a hobby. <laughs> and so, to be validated um, in the press was really oh. I did that. <laughs> it was kind of it was it was really it was really nice to hear that. Yeah, well, Jim it was certainly a champion of Canadian television to a great yeah. extent, and uh, somebody who. But he was always. Uh, I, I'm sure he wrote probably twenty times about uh, the various Degrassi incarnations, right? Oh yes, he was fantastic. He was he was always. <laughs> And he, he would come. To, he would come to set. And he had the worst sense of direction, and he'd always get himself lost in places. <laughs> he goes, "Excuse me, Jimmy, you're trying to find the front door and help him." But he was. He had such a good heart, and um, yeah, a true champion of Canadian television, not just of us, but of Canadian television in general. Linda's choice for her all-time favorite TV theme song is an oldie from back home, the theme to Coronation Street. Yes, it should come back to many of us just like an old, familiar, and really annoying friend. The long-running British soap opera was first broadcast in December of 1960. The theme, originally called Lancashire Blues, is reminiscent of northern band music. It was written by Eric Spear. In 1960, he was paid six pounds to write it. The trumpeteer was a fellow named Ronnie Hunt. So head to your nearest tavern and raise a pint to Eric and Ronnie. My thanks, as always, to producer Phil Hong for his professional touch with this podcast. Thanks as well to Katie Brio for designing the main Brio.tv news and views site. I'm also indebted to the many fine publicists who bring guests to this site, especially in this instance, Ian Christensen, Director of Live Action Publicity at Wild Brain, and Emily Varsava at ECW Press. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The feedback is very much appreciated. I'm Bill Brio. Thanks for listening.